As the country prepares to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks, there is one huge piece of unfinished business still outstanding. The perpetrators of the attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his confederates from Al-Qaeda, have yet to be brought to trial. For years now, they have been languishing in Guantanamo Bay, caught up in an endless legal wrangling over how and when a military commission trial can bring them to justice. The military commission trial set up to try them suffered another blow last week when it was learned that Mark Martins, the longtime chief prosecutor for the military commissions, had resigned reportedly over a dispute over whether statements made under torture could be used in the proceedings. So as we approach September 11th, 2021, the long-awaited trial of the perpetrators of the worst terrorist attack in American history is nowhere. No lead prosecutor, no judge, no trial date. We'll discuss what went wrong with Carol Rosenberg of the New York Times, and then with Jay Johnson, the former chief counsel at the Defense Department, who had pushed to preserve the military commission system on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So this, I think we should call our deja vu all over again episode. We have been talking for years about Guantanamo and the 9-11 terror attacks and how to bring the uh, perpetrators to justice. This was something we covered intensely uh, when Clydman and I were back at Newsweek in the uh, all the years after 9-11 and into the Obama years, a period when Victoria was overseeing all this at the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I got to say, this ranks as the apps as far as I can tell, the worst legal fiasco in American history. The idea that more than two decades later, or coming up on two decades later, we don't even have a trial date to bring to justice the people who killed more Americans in one day than anybody else in American history is... Um, Pretty mind-boggling. Well, Victoria, it is true that in your role as a Senate Judiciary Committee staffer, you were involved in these issues. I don't think Mike is implying that you oversaw the whole thing and are therefore <laughs> responsible for it. Oh, I yes. Did, I did that not. That was my I point. I had nothing to do Victoria with setting up Guantanamo. And she failed I, us. And nothing, right. n- <laughs> nothing the, to do know, with that. But the thing Let is, the record reflect. Yeah. The, the thing is, um, right. you know, other than at these these anniversaries, these big anniversaries, you know, no one really talks about these trials anymore uh, because people have forgotten about them. The people who have not forgotten about them are the families of the victims of 9-11 who have not gotten justice in all of these, in all of these years. And it is maddening. So there are approximately 40 detainees still at Guantanamo. And I think it's important to also talk about another category of detainees who are there right now. There are about 11 of them who have never been charged with anything. 
and who in many cases the United States has determined are eligible for release from Guantanamo, but still hasn't figured out where they can send them to. And just this week and fast last night, there's a major court case going on about this right now where one of those detainees is asking the court to determine that he has due process rights under the U.S. Constitution. And just last night, the U.S. Department of Justice essentially filed a position paper with the D.C. Circuit saying, eh, we don't know, can't figure out. Do they have due process? Don't they have due process? So not only is the legal fiasco going on vis-a-vis the military trials that they're attempting to bring against the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators of 9-11 and the masterminds, but you have an entirely other class of detainees in Guantanamo who are also subject to, Mike, as you say, a legal fiasco. Yeah, Two literary works come to mind when I think of all this. One is, uh, what was it, Dickens' book? Um, Bleak, Bleak House. House Jarn- Jarndyce, Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. Jarndyce. Yeah. yeah, the... Uh, Favorite the, book the, of lawyers. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the legal proceeding that went on for decades and nobody could remember, you know, how it no got started or yeah. why. But the other one is uh, Sartre, uh, No Exit. It looks to me like there is no exit out of this system because you know they've tied themselves in knots over the torture issue and there's no resolution of it there you know uh, anything that the military commission decides on this you know if they ever can decide is going to be appealed for years and years through the uh, traditional court system because that is part of the reformed military commission well and Act. what does it what does it say about a, a country i mean as you put it at the beginning of this conversation the greatest, you know, the you know, mass murder uh, yeah. in the history of of the United States, and right. we cannot bring justice to the, to this case. Whatever justice is, we you know, yeah. we we can't we can't resolve it. We can't get there. And of course, there was a way, which was if the United States government had pursued civilian trials, it, it would have also been enormously helpful if we hadn't tortured lots of people. Yeah, or or tortured any of them because the ones right. we tortured the worst are the people who are there now. I mean, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had the most uh, waterboarding acts uh, against him. Uh, I think one of the others was Abu Zubaydah, who's still there, and then uh, Nashiri, who did the coal bombing. But I mean, yeah, I mean, and these were decisions made at this, you know, early on by the Bush administration, that they were going to do this, that the premium was on getting as much uh, information out of these guys as quickly as possible. They wrongly thought torture, enhanced interrogation techniques was the way to do it. It wasn't. Much of the information they did get was unreliable. Uh, It didn't bring us any closer to um, a a resolution of anything. So, uh, yeah. But the the reality is that that the Article 3 civilian courts had advantages over military commissions that even would help get around that issue. I mean, for one thing, you know, the uh, civilian courts had successfully tried, uh, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of of terrorists. Uh, They had... Not who had been subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques. No, no, but they had, um, first of all, uh, built up decades and decades of of case law. Uh, The judges had experience. You had anti-terrorism... Uh, statutes on the books 
You had other statutes like conspiracy, which the military uh, commissions couldn't use. And the irony here is that the Bush administration went with military commissions because they wanted to appear tough. They wanted military justice for war criminals. And at the end of the day, it was the civilian trials that proved to be more resilient than military commissions. So, And the Obama folks wanted to split the difference, figuring, all right, we'll, we'll be like Obama. We'll come up with some compromise that will preserve the system but we'll reform it. 100 percent. Uh, and those reforms proved completely worthless because here we are. So it'll be really interesting to hear what Jay Johnson has to say about all this uh, when we put him on the spot. Uh, but first, we've got Carol Rosenberg, who is the dogged the dean, the dean of Guantanamo reporter, reporters, the dean of Guantanamo reporters. So let's get to it. We now have with us Carol Rosenberg, the country's premier reporter on Guantanamo and everything that goes on there. Carol is now with the New York Times, formerly with the Miami Herald. Carol, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for the invitation. So you had a pretty important story the other day. You have been following for years the efforts to bring the perpetrators of 9-11 to trial in a, before a military commission at Guantanamo. Uh, this has turned into what I think most people would agree is one of the biggest legal fiascos in American history as we approach the 20th anniversary. A trial is still not, a trial date, I believe, has still not been set. And the chief prosecutor for all these many years, for uh, at least 10 years, I believe, Brigadier General Mark Martins has announced he's re retiring, he's leaving, uh, leaving this whole process without a chief prosecutor, and I believe also without a chief judge. What is going on, Carol, and why did Mark Martins suddenly resign now? Well, he, he put in for retirement. That's effective September 30th. I guess that's effectively resigning. The backstory, I mean, the, before the backstory, the background is he had been telling victims and reporters who he hadn't spoken to in recent years, he was continuing to tell the victims that he would stay on the case as long as it takes to get the 9-11 case to trial. And so it was a big surprise. And in classic Mark Martin's fashion, he submitted his retirement papers on a Wednesday the, you know, the secretive office of the chief prosecutor kept a lid on it until Thursday night when in the, of their own choosing, they told 9-11 victims in an email. And then we found out about it on Friday, you know, a, a well-kept secret, actually. Mark Martins had come to, by my reporting, he had come to have disputes with administration lawyers over positions that the case would take, actually not even the case, the office, because it, that the office would take on torture. Specifically in another case, the controversial invocation of a statement made by Abdul Rahim al-Nashri, the man who's accused of being the mastermind of the USS coal bombing, had made during interrogation 
by the CIA in Afghanistan that has been described as really quite cruel torture. And they had in a pretrial motion in that case, sought to close off discovery on a certain avenue by quoting Nashri as telling his CIA interrogators that somebody else was not involved in the, in the bombing. The defense have been pursuing alternative theories and one of it is that you got the wrong person and that the mastermind of the cold bombing was someone else. And they, to try to stop that discovery, said, uh, filed a classified motion in which they said, listen, or read, this is what Nasheri told his interrogators. This is the defense lawyers put that in. Pardon me, the prosecutors had, the prosecutors. Put, had put that in and, and the defense lawyers had called foul. They said, you, for the first time, are invoking a statement taken under torture to try to forestall an avenue of discovery. They've, they've appealed it. The judge actually, in the case, an army judge said he would use it for what it's worth. He hasn't ruled. And then the defense lawyers have appealed it to a, the U.S. Court of Military Commissions Review. In discussing what the government position would be on this, there seems to have been quite a dispute. The people in the administration were very unhappy with this invocation of a statement taken during torture. And there had been other issues in which there was a disagreement, supposedly. And, you know, he'd had a very unpleasant conversation about whether this would be defended, whether the government and, and appeals would defend it. And supposedly left that conversation and then the same day filed for who, who in the Biden administration is telling Martins, no, we're not going to defend you uh, using statements that were uh, elicited during torture? So who, where's that it, coming from? So, so the way it works, the way it works is as the appeals leave the, uh, the military commissions, leave the tribunal system and work their way through the U.S. Court of Military Review and then go up to the federal circuit. U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, potentially on their way to the Supreme Court. You're really getting into the weeds here, Carol, but go ahead. They're asking who, who's, where it happens. Defense yeah. Department lawyers are involved in it. Justice Department lawyers are involved in it. Other portions of military commission can be involved in it. So as long as he's doing things down there that he doesn't need to defend, it wasn't brought to their attention. And by the way, this is also at the same time as they're having a dispute or a discussion internally in the administration about what to do about due process. Well, let's let's step back for a minute, and for the benefit of our listeners who aren't as steeped in all of these legal issues uh, <laughs> as we are, you know, explain uh, how it is, and it clearly it has to do with this question of eliciting testimony from people who have been tortured, but explain how it is that these 9-11 defendants who were transferred to Guantanamo in 2007 and all of these years later, they don't have a trial date because the argument at the time, as you know, was that they needed to be tried or the argument made by many was that they needed to be tried in these military commissions because they were they were tough because the suspected terrorists should not be entitled to, you know, the gold-plated justice that we have in our civilian courts uh, that are for American citizens and not war criminals. So how did we get here? Um, the question is, like, what's the latest reason? They, they created a court in Guantanamo with the, with the concept, I think, as you well know, Dan, that they would use statements made 
to the FBI after they got to um, Guantanamo. They tried to call them clean teams, suggesting that whatever had been taken from them while they were in CIA custody, while it wasn't acceptable, the FBI could do consensual interviews and get them to confess to their crimes and they'd run them and convict them. So first of all, this is a death penalty case and they have been assigned very, very talented capital defense attorneys who are civilians. Secondly, they are steeped in the litigation of whether or not those FBI quote unquote confessions are admissible. You know, there's a fruit of the poison tree argument. Thirdly, as, you, as I think you guys know, Guantanamo is a hard place to practice law and practice court. They have not been able to work their way through disputes over discovery. They've not made decisions or, I mean, as people may recall, they've, they've called testimony about what, how the black sites worked and from people who did the interrogations about how you get people to admit to things. They're, they're on there. Have you guys done the count? The, the, the last judge who quit, quit right before the pandemic to retire is now prosecuting in Salt Lake City and they don't have a new judge. There are structural problems, there are geographic problems, and there are is continuing litigation over how to do this trial, what is acceptable um, evidence. You know, there are so many issues between now and actually bringing a jury pool down there, including how big the jury pool will be and where it will be drawn from. You know, they're military officers that they can they they are stuck in the pre-trial process, which you know I always have to remind people. In the pretrial, in, in any case, it is for the defense to try to create the best conditions for a trial. They try to eliminate evidence. They try to organize, you know, the best jury possible. They try to, in this instance, they, they certainly are trying to figure out how to get the, whichever next judge gets it to take the death penalty off the table. It's unprecedented investigation as the prosecution keeps telling us in the history of America. So there's piles of evidence out there. They've created a superstructure where the prosecution gets to see CIA evidence, but the defense have to see substitutions and the judge have to approve. Carol, Carol, it is 2021. We're talking about a terrorist attack in 2001. We're coming up in just Michael, you a know couple, well, couple of months. It's the 20th anniversary. Is there... They took them to the dark sites. They didn't take them to New York and put them on trial. They disappeared them into detention for three and four years in the CIA. Then they brought them to Guantanamo and then they investigated them some more. And then they tried to try them in a previous court. If you want the explanation, I can give it. If you, if you wanna be frustrated at the fact that this didn't work or it hasn't worked yet, Join the club. Hasn't hasn't worked yet. Is there, wait a second, Carol, is there any exit here? Is there any ramp that gets us to a trial anytime in the foreseeable future? Because I'm not hearing it the way you're describing where we are right now. Uh, you know, people are holding up for a plea deal that would get you to the trial because in military justice, you would get the facts and the and and evidence put on in what, what's in it for ksm to plead guilty to uh, the 9-11 attacks pardon me what's in it for ksm to plead guilty to the 9-11 attacks they would take death off the table that would be the only reason to do it i mean does he care at this point i mean you know if there's not going to be a i mean when are we when do they even think when do they think a trial could actually take place at this point i don't know who they is 
Well, when do you think a trial can actually They need a new judge. Place? They need a new prosecutor. They need to restart the hearing. On the timeline, that, well, that, that could be a decision that affects some judges' decisions down at the court level. That's the thing that's coming up. But they need the defense need more evidence. I'm sorry. They need a judge. They need a defense. They need a chief defense counsel. They need a prosecutor. One of the 9/11 defense lawyers, capital defense lawyers, developed a heart condition. Is retired. A new a new lawyer is coming in. All they've got is a reporter to cover it. You. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no, they've also got they've also got a very hardcore set of victims of of people who died on that day, who are determined for this to be a death trial, for this to be a capital trial, and for it to be a public trial because they want answers. In order to get there, the defense are pushing for, I mean, the, the, the big thing that's yet to come is a giant motion to dismiss the case for outrageous government conduct, which will require litigation. People like to blame the defense attorneys saying, you know, they're throwing hurt obstacles in the way but they're trying to create the best conditions for this, this case. If I mean, I'm not advocating this by any means, but if it were a non-capital case, many of these questions would not be relevant. And uh, it, it, Carol, if this case um, had been tried in a civilian Article Three court, uh, where do you think we would be today? There are people who have, I don't where do I think? I think it'd be over. The way the way it's described to me is that the first thing that would happen is a federal judge would have dismissed the capital aspects of it because of the torture evidence. They would have managed to mount a trial with probably less discovery because in the intervening years, we've learned more and more about the black site program. And some of that was truly much more classified. Where would it be? I think that the common wisdom is he'd be sitting in, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would be sitting in the supermax in Florence serving life in prison. So is there any sentiment or thought at this point saying uh, from Biden folks or anybody in the system saying, God, there's no way this is ever going to work. We need to come up with a plan B. Is there any thought in the Biden administration? I, yes, I think that there's grave concern by people that the 20th anniversary is coming and this thing has been on ice since the beginning. Right. Of, so, of, so what's the, the plan B? The, I don't I can't tell you what it is. I did pose the question that now that Mark Martins were gone, was gone, would it be possible or more possible to create a plea deal for life? And the answer is you need a chief prosecutor to do that. And, and you know, they haven't figured out who's going to go forward with it. Would the families, uh, the relatives of the victim of the victims, get behind that? Do you think after all these years? Some of them would. Not. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a vocal minority that are troubled by the torture or have personal uh, opposition to capital punishment who have been advocating this for a long time. The balance of it is, is that you know, with all respect, Mark Martins has has adopted this policy of. We will do. We will take as long as it takes to get this thing done properly. That if he has told the victims that one of the reasons it takes so long is that they're trying to make sure that it is a unappealable conviction, which we all know is you know, you, you know, there, there's no such thing as an appeal-proof conviction. But the the, some, the victims who have paid most attention to this include a very vocal vocal majority who want one trial, capital case, to end in a death sentence. 
Let me ask you about uh, something else. There's another court proceeding underway in New York, uh, the lawsuit brought by the families of the victims against the Saudi government. We just had fresh reporting this week about the deposition of a Saudi official who was suspected of involvement by the FBI and was questioned on repeated occasions by the FBI. Now, I know that the family's uh, lawyers are frustrated that the FBI evidence about the uh, Saudi role has not been turned over to them. Uh, Barr imposed state secrets on it. They're appealing to Garland to lift that. But that that evidence has been shared with the lawyers for the defendants in Guantanamo. So I want to ask you, first, if you know if that is in fact the case, and secondly, do we know anything about what those defendants, KSM and the others, have said that might be relevant to the lawsuit being brought by the families in New York? The answer to your second question is, I don't know. The first answer to your first question is, it is possible that some of the evidence about some of that information that the families want declassified has come through discovery to the defense attorneys, but it may very well be in substitution format. And so they don't exactly know what they're looking at. And by the way, information like that can always be shared with the defendant. So you're talking about something that I think is quite peripheral. I'm not saying that the defense attorneys wouldn't. Well, it's not peripheral to the families who have brought the lawsuit in New York. I agree. I agree. And I talked to those families and there's some overlap with them going to Guantanamo. One of the things that these people who want a trial want is they want answers to questions that aren't raised by the charge sheet or the case, including the Saudi role. You know, it's not it, it is a different pursuit, but there's no reason to believe that that Saudi role or lack thereof or what happened at the Saudi embassy or et cetera. It's not in the charge sheet. There's no connection unless the defense attorneys can figure out a way to deflect it onto someone else through the evidence they've given. They're not going to get their satisfaction at that trial. Well, it just seems to me, look, the FBI for years investigated, in particular, the events in Southern California where the two hijackers fly in in January 2000 and then are provided all this help. The apartment is set up for them. A bank account is set up for them. You know, they're, you know, they're welcomed and they're taken care of, even though n neither of them spoke English or had any ties to the United States. States, which has raised questions who helped them and why. It seems to me that those defendants sitting in Gitmo, particularly KSM, might have you know better insight into answering that question than anybody else, uh, certainly in U.S. custody. And um, it seems uh, that there's a disconnect here. Part of the case against them is built upon FBI interrogations or questioning of KSM in 2007 after he was brought in from the black sites. It was a very targeted questioning by the FBI over a number of days in order to build a case against him. I find it unlikely that in those questioning, they raised uh, issues involving the FBI's lack of foresight for understanding what became known as the sneak attack. If you're saying, could there be the possibility that through, I mean, and I sound like I'm advocating it and I'm not, through a plea deal where there's a requirement for cooperation and he would have to be, or could potentially be deposed, that's what they do down there, Gitmo. They arrange for people to turn cooperator. 
So I'm not saying that taking death off the table would make him available to the families. And I'm not saying that the families who are posing those questions will get any satisfaction from him, but his lawyers are not gonna allow him to participate in that lawsuit or discussion while there's a capital right. case hanging over his head. Right, right. Good so point. if you're asking yeah. whether in the, in the millions of pages of investigations uh, of, of how people screwed up and then learned about what happened in the 9-11 attacks, there are answers to the Saudi role or lack thereof? There probably are. But I don't think it leads to KSM and the discovery in the 9-11 trial at Gitmo. And I've told family members that because I think that there's, you know, there's, they have, people have a lot of questions also with the coal attack. But when you're building a case to prosecute and put someone to death, only alternative theories are raised by the defense if they can figure out a way to do it with justification. All right. Well, Carol, I want to thank you. The one thing that my main takeaway from this conversation is, given that you are the Gitmo reporter for the New York Times, you are a journalist with permanent job security. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess, I guess, you know, going to the top yeah. of it, Mark Martin's uh, deciding to retire abruptly is not going to bring the trial date of the 9-11 accused sooner. And it could very well postpone it later, but there is no start of trial date. They need hearings to set up the trial. And by the way, one quick last question I should ask you this earlier is, you know, Obama came in in January 2009 saying he was going to shut down Gitmo. Here we are all these many years later, and it is still there. Uh, do the Biden people, are they even talking about shutting down Gitmo? And if they did, what would they do with the, uh, with the people still there? That's the aspiration, and it is clear for, that the only way to close Guantanamo is to move it and to bring some of the detainees to the United States. And I would say that until they can get permission or figure out how to move people to the United States, they're stuck with Gitmo. That said, that doesn't preclude if they can bring them here, putting them on trial here through either a military commission continuing the military commission. Uh, there'd be legal challenges to that up the wazoo. You know, immediately the ACLU would be in court. Nope, they're in U.S. You're in, this is in the United States. The court system governs in the, the United States. The same arguments they've been making why it's illegitimate at Gitmo. Yeah. All right. All right. Anyway, Carol, thanks and um, continue your endless reporting on the uh, endless trial in Gu Guantanamo. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Carol. Okay, we now have with us Jay Johnson, the former Secretary of Homeland Security. Jay, skullduggery regular at this point, and right? skullduggery regular. <laughs> yes. Um, so we want to have you on today because we just had a conversation with Carol Rosenberg of the New York Times about the knows a lot more about Guantanamo than the I events in Guantanamo. Uh, the chief prosecutor, longtime chief prosecutor of the military commission trial has just resigned. There's no chief judge as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11 
in uh, less than two months. Uh, there is no trial date for trying the people who did 9-11, starting with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Before you were Secretary of Homeland Security, you were General Counsel at the Defense Department in 2009, and among those who pushed for a military commission trial down in Gitmo for the perpetrators of 9-11. As you look back on that today, how frustrated are you that here we are so many years later with this seemingly interminable legal process going on in Gitmo? And I guess, secondarily, you know, were you wrong to push for the military commission system when you did back then? So let me answer it this way. There are plenty of decisions I have made in the course of my personal and professional life that if I had to do over again, with the benefit of hindsight, I would do over again. For example, if the founders of Facebook came to me as they were founding Facebook to say, would you invest $100 in this terrific <laughs> company we have? I'd say, of course. But with the benefit of hindsight, right? With yes. the benefit of hindsight. Hindsight is brilliant. Your first question, I think, is more appropriate. And the reason I say that is there are lots of instances in which people have asked me, arising from my career in national security, well, would you have done this differently? We may have even had that conversation on skullduggery about Russian hacking in the 2016 election. What's important to remember is, is context and the circumstances that exist at the time. And I do remember that. So I will acknowledge that in 2009, and even during the transition period, 2008 to 2009, within the Obama administration, the new Obama administration, I was probably the chief proponent, not one of, but probably the chief proponent of reformed military commissions. And when I was making the rounds in the JAG community in the run-up to the Obama administration during the transition, they made a pretty impassioned case to me that with a reformed system, we can make this work, we should make this work. And historically, this is how you prosecute people in armed conflict who have been captured on the battlefield the JAG community was most upset at the provision in the Military Commission's Act of 2006 that permitted the use of CID, statements taken as a result of cruel and human degrading treatment, and they wanted that eliminated. And so they convinced me that reform military commissions could work, and that was the discussion in the interagency process leading up to the decision in May 2009 by President Obama to work with Congress to reform military commissions and make them work. And in the Situation Room, around the table, in principal committee meetings, in deputies committee meetings, the debate, best of my recollection, was principally between me and Greg Craig. Harold Coe had not been confirmed yet. <laughs> if he had, he would have been in the middle of this. And Greg made the case that we should scrap the whole system, use Article Three courts. I made the case that for at least some of the detainees, we should retain the system and use the system. And 
in answer to your question, if I had the crystal ball then to say that we'd be sitting here in July 2021, more than 12 years later, and the 9-11 defendants, the Nashiri defendant, still not gone to trial, I'd say, huh, really? And probably think different about the idea. But we don't get that. We don't get the benefit of that in life. Jay, you, you frame this this debate that was going on as you know, sort of purely substantive, um, and I'm sure in your case it was. But as you know, there was also politics swirling around this, sure. this issue. And my recollection from my reporting at the time, and actually going into 2010, because there was there was a plan being pushed by Greg Craig and the then Attorney General Eric Holder, and accepted by President Obama to try Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the others in Article Three civilian courts. Absolutely, um, and then it and, I and agree then with it, that. right, and then it blew up. And yep. my my recollection from the time was that um, the a big reason it blew up in terms of the politics was that Republicans in uh, in Congress in the Senate, particularly Lindsey Graham was dangling this idea of a grand bargain for the Obama administration. Given on this issue of military commissions, which he was adamant about as a former JAG officer himself, he insisted that this be done as a mili- these trials be done in military commissions. And I will get on board your, the, the, the grand bargain was, you know, I'll help you close Guantanamo. And the Obama administration and President Obama himself and Rahm Emanuel kind of went for that. So wasn't politics a big part of this at the time? Politics always plays a role. <laughs> you know, there's always some degree to which politics plays a role. I recall, and I, Dan, you're an excellent reporter with fantastic sources, but I, I was in the room. I recall that politics itself did not play a major role in the decision-making around the table law and a host of other considerations did play a role. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you're, you're refreshing my memory about the posture of Lindsey Graham. This was the Lindsey Graham of 2009, by the way, not the Lindsey Graham of 2021. This was the Lindsey Graham of 2009 who said publicly and privately he wanted to close Guantanamo Bay. Here we are 12 years later. Incidentally, we we're talking about events of 12 years ago you know, when it, whenever a witness begins a deposition, the lawyer always asks, what did you look at to refresh your recollection for your testimony, Mr. Witness? <laughs> and I did, in preparation for this, try to hunt around for a couple things. There was a very well-written OLC opinion about the constitutionality of military commissions written in 2009, which was declassified at some point. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. I looked at a New Yorker magazine article in 2016 about Gitmo. And then I looked at this book called Killer Capture. I was going to, I was hoping you were going to bring up that. By somebody named Dan Clayman, published (laughs) in 2012, uh, as I recall, which brought back certain, (laughs) certain memories. Landmark Killer Capture book. Right, right. (laughs) So, um, so Dan, I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit and say, no, and it's important to remember that after the president decided to work with Congress to reform military commissions and use the system, we then set about the process of dividing these cases up. And I concluded 
that the 9-11 case should go to the Southern District of New York. We sat down with the prosecutors from DOJ. I sat down with the with the military commission's prosecutors and went through each of these cases in detail using my experience as a former prosecutor myself. Okay, what's admissible evidence? What's not? Can we get a conviction? What's the strength of the case? And I was very comfortable sending the 9-11 case to federal court in Manhattan, in part because I'm a New Yorker and I was on Manhattan Island on 9-11 and I used to work in that office. Think if only you had prevailed on that. And well, how this you know, would have been over that, years ago. If that case ago. had gone, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, if that case had gone to the Southern District in 2009, they probably would have been long convicted and they'd be serving their sentence right now. So what happened? You advocated that, but then it blows up because Lindsey Graham and others, including Mayor Bloomberg in New York, as I remember it, were pushing back on the idea of flying the 9-11 yes. uh, defendants yes. to, to Manhattan. Yep. All played out yeah. all uh, after the announcement in uh, uh, 2009 and to the point where Congress inserted language into the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, prohibiting the transfer of detainees to the United States. Which, by the way, made it effectively impossible to shut down Guantanamo. Yes, it, 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 they knew what they were doing, right. And so then there was this long hiatus from about February 2010 to, I think, February 2011, where Virtually nothing happened with the 9-11 case. It was, it was frozen. And it wasn't until early 2011, I think February 2011, that the Attorney General finally acknowledged that DOJ wasn't going to take the case and it had to go back to the commission system. So I was fascinated by when you were recounting how you were seeking to reform the military commission process that had been put in place by the Bush administration. The issue was using statements made by the defendants that was elicited during cruel and inhuman treatment. Right. Which is still the central issue that has gotten these proceedings bogged down in endless litigation ever since. That That's the core issue here. We tortured these guys, and now what do you do with people whose confessions we got under torture? How do you bring them to trial? Some of this, I'm a little rusty on some of this, so forgive me if I make a mistake here. My recollection is that statements taken in the course of enhanced interrogation, torture, were always off the table. CID, cruel and human degrading treatment, is a is a, a, a lesser form of circumstance. A lesser form of torture, but go ahead. Well, it, it's a it's a it, <laughs> by but, definition but the, cruel and inhumane. That sounds like torture to me. But it, it's kind of a notch down from the you know the hardcore torture. torture. Right. Um, and that in the 2006 law permitted use of that, which was very, very controversial. And the 2009 law, which we worked with Congress to get, working with Graham, McCain, Carl Levin, and others, prohibited the use of that. But it didn't uh, it, it didn't resolve this issue for but the you're right. commission we're, we're, system, we're right? From what I read, written by Carol Rosenberg, 
uh, we're still having essentially this same debate. What should the government do now? Um, because I mean, <laughs> uh, seriously, because good... Car- Carol actually—I mean, when we just interviewed her, and um, she, you know, essentially said, if I understood her, that the most likely, plausible, maybe only way to resolve this and get justice for the relatives of the victims is some kind of a plea deal. Um, where In you which take, death would be off the table and that would not off- satisfy many of the uh, families of the victims. So let me begin. I should have prefaced this entire discussion with the following. I'll say it now. I am speaking on behalf of myself and only myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of the United States government. I would not want my statements to be used or misused in some fashion by any party in criminal or civil litigation. I'm just speaking on my own half, on my own behalf. Which carries this, a lot of weight is, on Skullduggery. It's a very difficult problem uh, because at this case, at this point, DOJ doesn't want any of these cases because they're going to be huge speedy trial problems, which, you know, would have a real problem on appeal if there was a conviction. And you got to do something. So, you know, Carol's, it's int- Carol's idea is interesting. I don't know. It, you know, you, plea deal it takes two to dance. So I don't know what the mindset of the defendants is these days. But would that be an acceptable outcome for you, for you just as a, just Jay Johnson, American citizen? Well, it depends on what the deal is, obviously. For sure. Yeah, we, they ha- it has to be resolved one way or another. We've been sitting in a stalemate now for over a decade. So the answer is yes, it could be. It depends on the deal. Like anything, it's like saying, would you buy this house? Well, it depends on the price tag. So it, it well, depends Presumably on the they'd spend the rest of their life in prison somewhere, if not Gitmo. You know, there, there's no way they're going to be, you know, let loose. I would, I, if I were the Secretary of Defense, and I'm not, I would, I would say, interesting, I want to hear more. Yeah. What would you say to the families at this point who have been endlessly frustrated with the fact that yeah. um, there's um, been no trial for the people who I you know I, loved ones? I every 9/11 I think about them in this context because they don't have closure in terms of our criminal justice system. It's still in the pretrial phase. I think one one of the things Mark Martins did well, and presumably we'll get to him in a moment, was to stay in contact with these families, to be their advocate from the public accounts of his time. It sounded like he did a good job in, in that regard, which is perhaps why they haven't been more vocal about bringing these guys to justice. But it, this is, this is, there's not much I could say to the families of those killed on 9-11 at this point in the year 2021 about how well the criminal justice system has served them. Yeah. Um, well, it hasn't served them at all is, I think, the only conclusion one could draw. I mean, it, 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 from the if you were at the White House at the moment, I mean, would you be pushing for any redirection or recalibration or 
you know, any step proactively well, that wouldn't so depend it, it, on it, what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed agreed so to? You, you got to, you know, we don't want to create another White House Department of Justice, criminal justice, you know, uh, scandal here where a White House is getting involved in criminal cases. And I think there's actually, there used to be a provision in the Military Commissions Act that it's rather incomprehensible, as I recall it, that prevents involvement in prosecution decisions by the lawyers handling these cases. The JAG's got it put in there, and it's kind of incomprehensible. So the White House needs to be careful. You can be involved in overall policy level, and the Obama White House certainly was in terms of the overall direction uh, of these cases. This, I mean, to be frank, this is an issue that nobody really likes to wrestle with. It's the issue that, you know, your, your listeners can't see me, but you can see me. This is, okay, this is an inbox, right? Uh, this, is a, this is one of those issues that unfortunately tends to sit at the bottom of the inbox. It's not something anyone is really anxious to talk about because uh, it just sits there in limbo. Um, I, I, think, I think Carol's idea has some appeal. I think that should be pursued. You were also at the Pentagon when some fateful decisions were made about Afghanistan in the early months of 2009. In which I did. The president remind me. Okay. Double down. Just before we leave, before we yeah. leave Guantanamo. Okay. okay. Sure. Um, I, I basically was the guy who hired Mark Martins. In 2009, when I was just getting to the Pentagon as general counsel of the Defense Department, I met David Petraeus and David Petraeus said, you got to meet this guy, Mark Martins. He's the smartest lawyer in the whole U.S. military. And I said, really? And we put Mark on one of the policy task forces that Obama established on, on Guantanamo early on. That's how I got to know him. And once a year, I used to have these dinners with a collection of lawyers from around Washington and, you know, and from Harvard Yale, a cross-section of national security lawyers to basically ask, how am I doing? Or how are we doing in, in national security law? And you can imagine, you can imagine the composition of the room. It ranged from people like Jack Goldsmith to Anthony Romero. And it grew in size to the point where it included even Lindsey Graham. There was an aha moment in one of those dinners where everyone in the room said to me, you have to, with all respect to those who were working these cases, then you have to put the all-star team on the field for these military commissions cases. And it was not long after that, that I asked Mark Martins if he would take over as chief prosecutor. I asked him, how much military justice experience have you had in your career? And the guy is... Harvard Law Review, Rhodes Scholar, West Point, on the Harvard Law Review with President Obama, I'm told he had better grades. And he said, I've had a lot of experience. And I asked him if he would take this on as chief prosecutor at Guantanamo. And to somewhat of my surprise, he said yes. And to an even bigger surprise, he has hung in there for the last 10 years. He was appointed in about, I think, June 2011, which is 10 years ago. And he hung in there uh, to his credit. So until um, last week, until last week. Yes. Right. 
Right. Okay. Sorry, Afghanistan. Yeah. So, so on on Afghanistan, and in two thousand and nine, when all of this Guantanamo stuff was happening, we were also ramping up um, in in Afghanistan, and President Obama made the choice to to surge troops there. And now here we are on the September 11th, 20th anniversary of, of, of September 11th, and uh, we will have pulled all of our troops out of Afghanistan. I saw you this past weekend on, on uh, Face the Nation. You were asked about that. And you said uh, that if you were advising the president um, about this decision, President Biden, you would have told him to leave behind a, a force of maybe 2,500 troops, a, a counterterrorism force. Why and what are the implications of pulling out entirely? Is it, is it, a, is it a mistake? Does it, does it uh, expose us to danger? And, and is it a problem for, national, for American national security? And I think reasonable minds can differ on this. And it's one of those decisions where if I had been part of this administration and the president made this decision, I would be comfortable defending the decision. But if, as I said before, I were in a position to advise President Biden on this, I would have probably, you know, it, I, I know from experience there's a big difference from having the benefit of being in the room and hearing all the options discussed versus sitting where you and I are sitting right now on the outside. But I probably would have recommended that you keep a small, tight, highly trained force I don't know what the magic number is, 2,500, 1,000, in place on the ground in Afghanistan for counterterrorism purposes only. The mission for the United States in Afghanistan was, is, and should be preventing another terrorist organization from establishing a caliphate in Afghanistan, given the nature of Afghanistan. Large swaths of Afghanistan are remote, ungoverned space. And president came to a different decision. And I know Joe Biden has sat through this discussion for years. He was vice president for eight years in the room when we talked about this during the reassessment in 2009 and in the years subsequent and believes firmly that we need to get out. And he asked, you know, if not now, when? Why, why will it be any better 10 years from now or eight years from now? Why should I hand this off to another president. And apparently, I don't know this for a fact, but apparently we have the ability to engage in quick response from beyond the borders of Afghanistan and knowing something about our capabilities and their technology and how that's evolved. That's probably true in the event that another organization tries to set up a caliphate there. And I suspect that the Afghan government would not resist us coming in to do what we have to do in that event, uh, uh, but, un unless the unless the uh, the next government in unless the government falls well, and the, the next government, government is the Taliban is, is the Taliban right. right right now now we have to be realistic. This is not going to be a pretty picture after we leave. It's already not a pretty picture. I've heard reports that. The Taliban is already in control of 80% of the country. Now, that, that statement is of limited value because 90% of the country is largely remote. And 
they are overrunning the country. The Taliban had the attitude for the last 20 years, you have the watches, but we have the time. We're going to wait you out. And they did. And here we are. So this is not going to be an optimal situation. We should not expect that the Afghan government on its own, and here I'm probably veering from the White House talking points, that the Afghan government on its own can hold its own against the Taliban. Those two factions need to come to some agreement at some point. And right now, the Taliban has little incentive to do that. Well, what's so striking is here we are in 2021, and we've had a whole discussion about all the decisions you were grappling with in 2009 that are still unresolved. So um, we will have you back on Skullduggery in 11 years um, (laughs) to see if any progress has been made on any of these fronts. Um, And probably before that, but I want to to thank you for um, joining us again on Skullduggery. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.